a person's rights can't be taken away just because they, they've made bad choices. Um, we all have the right to make bad choices and, and anyone, you know, can't be stripped of their rights because of that. So so that's not the, what the court's looking at. They're looking at whether the person really has capacity. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well myself. We just got back from our uh, rodeo break, Tucson-specific rodeo break from school trip to go skiing in Colorado. So we're we're back from the snow. We got our share of snow for four or five days, and now we're back to warm weather in the desert. Nice, nice. That's pretty much all you need, right? Is like a couple few days of snow, and then you're back to being in Arizona, and you're like, I want the heat. Bring, Basically. bring the heat back on. <laughs> Basically, yeah. A couple of days of like icy parking lots and icy roads, and I'm I'm pretty much over it by that point. Like, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah, I I remember what this is all about. <laughs> then you remember why you live in Arizona. Quite <laughs> yes. <Right> quickly. <laughs> so it's a good trip. It was a good trip. It was. We had a good time. Uh, it was the first time for skiing for all of the children. So they took ski lessons uh, in the mornings for two days. And then we had a third day of skiing where we were just kind of doing things together. Everybody learned. Everybody uh, figured it out to varying levels of proficiency. The youngest, she only really did things on the bunny hill. But she's so little, it doesn't really matter. I mean, she, I, though I had no expectation that she was like going to go straight up the big lift and and do all the fun adult type uh, mm -hmm. runs. But the other kids did. They got they got up the mountain and, and did the big runs. So by the end, I, I was impressed. I, I, I didn't really have enormous expectations one way or the other going into it. But uh, but I was impressed. Everybody learned pretty quickly, after, pretty much after the first day, like everybody could basically do it. And then from there on out, it was just perfecting the art of the old uh, wedge slash pizza down the mm -hmm. mountain. Yeah. That's awesome. See, that's what I truly believe. Like kids need to learn how to do this stuff when they're young. One, because the moment you get older and you realize how much it hurts when you fall, like fear takes over, right? Like I don't, I don't want to go fast because I know how hard it's going to hurt. I know how broken bones feel. Not good. Kids don't have that fear, you know, and everything just is so bendable then, you know, they just, they, they crash, they get back up. You know, I crash, I sit in the bar for the rest of the evening in the lodge. So it's good to teach them young. <laughs> just one crash and you're just done. You just I'm shut dead. it down. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this would not have been very useful for you because this was a COVID uh, ski trip. So the bar was not really open. They had some uh, offerings in like the outdoor seating areas, but they were actually quite busy. So, there, you know, it wasn't that easy to just go take a break and sit down at a table. I didn't think about that. Which, yeah. Yeah. Which was different because going in the past, usually what would happen is you'd ski in the morning and then uh, by about lunchtime, you're exhausted and freezing, and then you'd go sit inside and eat some lunch and warm up. But we didn't have that option this time, so we we only were outside freezing, at least <laughs> for us, for us freezing. 
you got your money's worth. You are fully involved in the environment. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, we absolutely did. But it was good. Uh, the one the one mistake, if I have uh, one sort of word of wisdom for anybody out there who's thinking about going on a ski trip that involves driving to a ski trip with children, you cannot forget on any leg out or back, you cannot forget to regulate the liquid intake of the children in the vehicle. And we did a very poor job of that on the way up. <laughs> and we were stopping like every 40 minutes. Oh, no. Yeah, it was brutal. It was really brutal. <laughs> we eventually made it. Think we didn't have any sort of deadline, so that helped us out. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, I thought today would be fun to talk about the free Britney movement, uh, which seems to be all the rage right now. And you know way more about it than I do, but I have at least a passing interest in it because it's a conservatorship case. And I didn't think there'd be anybody more fun outside of the two of us to chat about this with. Then Joe Ferrucci. Joe is a partner in our firm in the Bay Area. So he's an actual California attorney. So anything that you and I say, because we're Arizona lawyers, is like, it doesn't really matter. And we're probably wrong. Whatever Joe says is probably right, because he actually knows these things. So Joe, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So for the very few people who actually don't know who you are, why don't you give us at least like the 30,000 foot view of, of who you are? Sure. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I do estate planning um, primarily, but I also do uh, probate and conservatorship uh, here in Northern California. So probate is handling a deceased person's estate through the probate court after they've passed away. And a conservatorship is when uh, someone is incapacitated and is unable to handle their own affairs. So I help clients set up conservatorships for family members and administer them once they're set up. Is it a is it sort of an intentional part of your practice? I know for us, we have a handful of conservatorships that are ongoing uh, that we like, but we're. I would not say, and I think Rachel would agree with the, this, that our practice is very conservatorship heavy. You know, we do not get the phone call for the conservatorships very often. You know, my practice is the same. I I primarily do estates and you know estate planning, so I'm setting up wills and trusts. But a handful of clients over the years have had conservatorships come up in their family. And so we've, you know, I've jumped into those cases and helped them out. So I feel like I know enough to be dangerous. (laughs) 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 Yes, I I know the feeling. Well, we did uh, this. Okay, this will be very interesting because I'm I'm curious to see a little bit of compare and contrast using this uh, Britney Spears case as is a little bit of a, a test where we can we can work through some of these issues, some of these conservatorship rules, maybe talk about how the process might be similar or different in Arizona and California or otherwise. So since uh, Rachel, you you seem to know a lot more about the case itself than I do, I thought maybe uh, you could give us at least a high level uh, overview of what's going on. So we're on track. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, if anyone hasn't seen the documentary, there is a documentary just came out a few weeks ago um, by the New York Times called Framing Britney Spears. And that's what really started all of this media attention towards her conservatorship. You had this always free Brit, hashtag free Britney movement going on. But I think now more than ever, that movement has really gained momentum. And so kind of where it all started, you know, back in like the mid 2000s, take it way back guys, 
Um, we all remember Britney Spears. She was in the limelight a lot, right? She's got all of these um, awards from all of her hits. And unfortunately, she was having um, a series of just really highly publicized um, events that in a way almost could call into question her mental health. Um, a lot of you may remember there was the incident where she shaves her head in the middle of the night. There's an incident where she attacks a paparazzi car with an umbrella. And I'm sure if I were being chased by the paparazzi 24-7, I might shave my head and do the same thing. I get it. Um, but unfortunately, these are highly publicized events because she was such a famous person at that time. She was also going through a divorce and she had a custody battle going on with her young children. So just a lot of really bad events were just kind of piling up on each other. During that time, she was also hospitalized a few times um, for mental health issues. And so right when all of this was happening, that's when we see the conservatorship started. So her father, Jamie Spears, petitioned the court for a temporary conservatorship, and that got granted. And so um, Right away when Brittany's released from the hospital, she's got a conservatorship. The court later um, made the conservatorship permanent. And when you think about it, Brittany was, I believe she was 26 years old when this happened. So she was really young. Um, typically when we see and we talk about conservatorships, we think of it as um, individuals with maybe developmental disabilities or individuals with Alzheimer's, dementia, way later down in life. We don't really think of it as a younger individual who's out there, you know, doing music videos and having shows all over the country. And so that's kind of where the conservatorship originally started. So her father, Jamie Spears, and another attorney that he worked with were appointed as her co-conservators. Um, from there, they've basically been in charge of all of, you know, her, her finances, her managing her, her personal affairs, all of that till this day. So like 13 years. And just recently, there's kind of been a lot of movement in the conservatorship. In 2019, the co-conservator, the attorney that was on the case, he stepped down. So Jamie Spears is now the sole conservator. Um, last year, he Jamie Spears also had um, some health issues. So he temporarily stepped down and we had a private fiduciary step in um, just while he was dealing with his health issues. Um, and then recently, just last year in 2020, um, Brittany is actually now opposing her father being a conservator. And Brittany petitioned the court uh, first to have uh, this temporary conservator who was in there while her father was dealing with her health, his, his health issues, um, petitioned the court first to just to have her be the sole conservator. The court shot that down, but Brittany still kind of won a little bit, um, and we got a co-conservator put back in. So we've got Bessemer Trust, which is a uh, private fiduciary. They handle this kind of stuff all the time. So they are co-conservator working with Jamie Spears on managing all of Britney Spears' affairs. Um, there's been a little bit of back and forth in the court system since then on Jamie Spears kind of contesting whether or not Bessemer Trust should be in there. Now the two have to work together. So we've seen a little bit of, of conflict there. But so far, the court has upheld it that we're going to have two co-conservators here. And 
that's kind of where we're at. There's still hearings going on. I mean, just it was just, a, I think, a week ago, honestly, that the court confirmed that Jamie Spears and Bessemer Trust were going to be working together. There's a hearing scheduled next month. So, I mean, this this thing is still going on. We haven't seen the end of it. And I think the the biggest thing that's kind of changed the, the game is just recently, I mean, just this last year, we've seen Brittany finally object to her father being a conservator. Now, again, that's that's just objecting to her father being a conservator. That is not objecting to the conservatorship. That is not trying to terminate the conservatorship. It is just saying, I don't want my father to be a co-conservator anymore. So that's kind of where we're at. I think that was the, everything that I had read about the case so far. So that's that's a great summary. Um, you know, it's, it's so interesting to, uh, you know, look at the history of the case and uh, there've been so there's been so much that's happened just in the last couple of years. You know the the resignation of the the co-conservator who had acted for as a co-conservator for ten years. Uh, there's been Brittany's petition to remove her father. Uh, there's been the introduction of Bessemer Trust. There's been the introduction of the professional fiduciary you mentioned, uh, Jody Montgomery. So there's been, there's been a lot of changes just in. in in very recent history. And and as you said, you know, it, it looks like now uh, Britney Spears is, is still not challenging the conservatorship, but is challenging her father acting as the conservator. Yeah. And maybe to, to kind of take a, a couple of steps back and sort of look at the timeline and then maybe explain some of the pieces and like, how do you even get there? Why, why would this even be happening? Because I, I know there's a lot of sort of chatter out there in the sort of if you look at the like hashtag free Britney uh, space, there's a lot of chatter about like, how you know, how could this be not understanding how it could be possible that you could have an adult who is a mother and is working and yet she can't make any of her own decisions because she has these conservatorships set up for her. So back and I think this was like 2008 time frame, mid, you know, mid 2000, early 2000 uh, time frame. She, you mentioned she was hospitalized or had some mental hospitalizations. I, I think in California it's called a 5150 proceeding. So, Joe, can you kind of break that down a little bit and explain what that is or how that could possibly happen to somebody, at least under California law? Sure. Uh, a 5150 hold is an involuntary psychiatric confinement. And um, it has a specific legal standard that's attached to it. Uh, there has to be the belief that the person is either a danger to themselves or to someone else. And so uh, Brittany was subjected to a 5150 hold, uh, I believe, a couple of times um, back in 2008. And we, here's the thing, you know, with conservatorships, um, the records, many of the records that are put in front of the court are confidential and are not available to the public. So we don't know some of the details of, around what happened with, you know, what precipitated those psychiatric confinements um, and what, if any, diagnosis there was of a mental health condition. So there's some unknowns, but those psychiatric holds were directly related to the conservatorship because right around the time that they happened was when Jamie Spears initially filed for conservatorship. Yeah, I think you just like honed in a real key issue right there, Joe, which is that all of these medical records are confidential, right? So when we've got everyone commenting about 
how, like you said, Brent, how is this possible? How can a person who is who's functioning, who has looks like everything put together, um, how, how is she subject to a conservatorship? And we don't see the medical records. And we've got doctors who are, you know, who really go into details. I mean, Brett and I have seen medical reports on some of the cases that we've worked on where, I mean, it can show a list of all the prescriptions, like you said, it shows diagnosis, what they, what the doctor uh, noted on their last visit with the, with the patient. I mean, they are very detailed and the courts really rely on those reports and really take them seriously in determining whether or not conservatorship is needed for someone. And without really seeing any of those records, it's, it's really hard for someone to comment really on whether or not a person really needs a conservatorship or doesn't need a conservatorship. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, and this is such an unusual case because, you know, if you look at someone like Britney Spears, I mean, yeah, she's she's touring, she's performing, she's recording. I mean, she seems very capable of leading her own life. So, you know, why have this conservatorship? It, it, and and we just don't really know. And I think you honed down in on it, Rachel, the, the big missing piece here are those medical records. Um, the only thing that would make sense is that there's some condition, mental health condition she has that is really compelling to the court, that the court really believes because of that, she really can't handle, you know, manage her own affairs or that she's subject to um, undue influence. So so two of the standards that the California courts look at in establishing a conservatorship is one, does the person have legal capacity or conversely, do they not have the ability to make their own medical and financial decisions? Uh, but the other standard is, you know, are they subject to, are they unable to resist undue influence or fraud? So, you know, someone could be f- high functioning, but still be vulnerable in a way and not not being able to, you know, uh, keep kind of nasty people out of their lives. And so it makes you wonder whether that's what the court thinks Brittany's situation is. Yeah, we have we have a somewhat similar standard in Arizona where you can have a conservatorship even though you don't fit the kind of archetypical person who would be subject to a conservatorship, right? Like you're not an elderly person with dementia. That's sort of the archetypical conservatee or protected person in in Arizona parlance. But you could still be subject to a conservatorship under the statute if there is some condition about you it could be physical, it could be mental, it could be a substance abuse issue, it could be something else where without the protection of the conservatorship, your assets are likely to be wasted. And without the management of somebody else, your assets could possibly be wasted, kind of to your point of, you know, you might be you, you might be subject or, or you might be uh, vulnerable to the entreaties of fraudsters and, and crooks and things like that. So those sorts of uh, conditions can be enough under the law, at least in Arizona, to subject somebody to a conservatorship. And it sounds like it's fairly similar in California. Yeah, that does sound very similar. You know, it's interesting in California, and I'd be curious to hear if this is true in Arizona, there's one other way that a conservatorship can be established, which is that if the person voluntarily consents and, and the court feels there's good cause. Uh, now, what what's good cause is very open-ended. It's within the full discretion of the court. And and this is, again, where in Brittany's case, we don't really have complete information. So, you know, it's also a question, you know, whether she, whether she consented to this and, and, you know, whether what could cause the court found to approve it if she did. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think we have a similar uh, voluntary consent uh, standard for a conservatorship. The voluntary piece for us would be you would you'd have a power of attorney or you'd have a trust. That'd be the voluntary route for us. Uh, the statute doesn't have a very ex express voluntary route. You would still have to make a finding that you meet the statutory standard to be subject to a conservatorship. You know, you could go into court and say, I want a conservatorship as much as humanly possible. But if the if the court was unconvinced that you actually met the the legal standard, they wouldn't impose it on on you. There is somewhat in the background of a lot of the chatter that you hear, I think people honing in on on one important issue about a conservatorship. And that is that when a conservatorship is, is imposed upon someone, technically it is taking away constitutional rights from them. Typ typically, these are constitutional rights to liberty. Sometimes they're constitutional rights to vote, things like that. Um, so what are the kind of due process uh, protections in California that then, uh, you know, the process you have to go through to protect against unwarranted taking of constitutional rights from somebody? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right uh, that, you know, a conservatorship is it, it's serious business. Really, what you're doing is is saying that a person, the conservatee, can no longer exercise certain rights that, that we all have. They, they, they're they stripped of certain powers to lead their own lives. Uh, you know, the primary ones that come to mind are, you know, the the uh, the right to choose your own medical treatment and, and the right to. Um, you know, have possession of and manage your own financial affairs. And, and you know, the thing is, um, um, the standard isn't whether you make good decisions or bad decisions. I mean, we all have the right to make bad decisions. So a person's rights can't be taken away just because they, they've made bad choices. Um, we all have the right to make bad choices and, and anyone, you know, can't be stripped of their rights because of that. So, so that's not the, what the court's looking at. They're looking at whether the person really has capacity. In general, when in California, when there's um, when you're going through the conservatorship process, um, the courts are very careful to make sure that before they've ordered a conservatorship, that there is substantial cause. So there is there's at least a couple of safeguards that come to mind. One is that. Uh, there's a requirement of a medical evaluation by an independent physician. So they're officers of the court. They're not hired by the conservator. They're hired by the court to independently evaluate this individual and see whether um, what what their health and mental condition is and report that objectively to the court. The other thing that's, that happens as part of every conservatorship process is that there's an independent court investigator, again, appointed by the court, not by the conservator, the proposed conservator, and their duty is to go to the conservatee, proposed conservatee, and meet with them and ask them a standard set of questions. And among those questions are, do you want this conservatorship? Do you agree to this conservator? You know, what, what you know, they're, they're trying to get a sense of what this person's wishes are and what their mental state is and to see how they respond. And, you know, I've I've seen some of these reports and, you know, in someone in the case of someone who has something like dementia or Alzheimer's disease, I mean, sometimes all that the court investigator can say is that the person's non-responsive. They just don't answer or don't don't express any opinion or or, or give an, an unintelligible answer. But even that's useful information for the court, because if the court knows that, that's pretty strong evidence that the person might need this kind of protection that a conservatorship can offer. 
So those are the kinds of things that the court would be looking at to determine whether someone really needs this or not, and whether it's right to take away their constitutional rights. That sounds very familiar to to Arizona. We, yeah, in, in Arizona, you there's an emergency, right? There, there is an avenue for an emergency hearing. But if you've got an emergency hearing and a conservatorship is imposed upon someone, it's only temporary, right? And then you've got all of these safeguards that go into place if we're about to put in a permanent conservatorship. It's like you said, Joe, there's... Uh, a medical professional that's appointed by the court to come in. You've got an investigator. You have an attorney that's appointed uh, for the individual. There, there are a lot of additional steps. I feel like it's there's a whole bunch of other uh, movies. Brett and I were talking about earlier. There's a fabulous Netflix movie right now. It's called I Care a Lot. Very entertaining. But it's all about guardianships and conservatorships. And it's about it being this super quick process where someone can get appointed and then they sell everything that you own and life as you know it is gone forever. And that's not the case. That's not the case at all. There's a lot of different safeguards in place because this is a very serious matter. When you are taking away constitutional rights, the court is not going to take it lightly. And we're going to make sure that we've got independent third parties getting the information to the judge that the judge can make the proper decision. It's funny you mentioned I care a lot. I happened to see that this weekend and uh, I had the same reaction. It, it just didn't at all resemble what I know the conservatorship process to be. Um, even if it, 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 what you described in Arizona sounds very similar to California, even if there is an emergency conservatorship, very next thing that has to happen is there has to be a hearing set for a permanent conservatorship and the conservatee has the right to appear. So this idea that the conservatee could just be squirreled away into a facility and never seen or from again is just not real, at least not here. Uh, and I've never heard of that happening in quite the way shown in that film. Well, we also have uh, a list of, we have two, actually two lists of priority. One is a list of the people who have priority to petition for the conservatorship to begin with. So it's not just anybody under the sun can show up in court and have the right to ask the judge to impose the conservatorship. It's basically people who are within that person's very inner circle. They're they're interested in that person's welfare. That's essentially the people that you see on the list who have the priority to come into court. Then there's a separate list that is, these are the people who have the priority to be appointed in court. And very high up the list are the people that the, the conservatee or the person upon whom this conservatorship could be imposed actually selects. So if they had selected somebody, say, in a power of attorney, that's very high up on the list of priority. It would come before even other family members. And then the court has to have good cause to pass over those people and appoint somebody else. Is it somewhat similar in California? It is. Uh, yes, there's an order of priority. And uh, my understanding is that um, the power of attorney document doesn't necessarily give priority, but it is standard practice here in California that within a, in a power of attorney document, there'll be language stating that um, the, the, the principal, the person writing the document nominates the power person with the power of attorney to be their conservator if ever one is needed. And so it often ends up being that that person has priority by virtue of that additional language in the document. And then the people next in line would be the folks you'd imagine, you know, a spouse or, you know, adult children, you know, perhaps a parent, you know, and other, other close family members. Mm -hmm. 
And then we also have a system where the only way that you could appoint someone who's not related to you as your conservator is if that person is actually licensed by the Supreme Court of Arizona. We have this whole licensure, fiduciary licensure process. Outside of that, uh, banks also, sorry, would, would fit into that category. Trust companies would fit into that category. So outside of sort of like banks, trust companies, or these uh, folks or, or other businesses that are actually licensed by the Arizona Supreme Court, unrelated parties can, actually can't be appointed as a conservator for somebody else. And so it sounds like maybe there's something somewhat similar, you know, if we're kind of trying to put two and two together here in this Britney Spears case, where you've got her father, who sounds like he would be on this list of priority of people who could be appointed, and then Bessemer Trust, which is a trust company. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, as her father, he would be among the people who would be close to the top of having priority for, for, for petitioning and for appointment as conservator. What's so interesting in the Britney Spears case is that, you know, my understanding is that she she didn't have a close relationship with her father before this conservatorship came into place. So I know some folks have questioned his motives for doing this. Did he have a financial motive of his own? That's also an interesting um, that would all that issue in itself would be interesting to the court. You know, I think the courts here are very wary of situations where a conservator might have a conflict of interest with a conservatee. Uh, so I don't know. Again, this is where we don't have some information from this case. And it's hard to know if the court looked at that issue or considered that possibility. But but I wonder if that's also if that issue factored into the court appointing Bessemer Trust. You know, when there are co when there are co-conservators, they need to communicate very openly with one another about what they're doing. And so one way to think about it is, you know, Jamie Spears is now accountable to Bessemer and Bessemer is account accountable to Jamie Spears. They have to essentially we'll keep tabs on each other. So it's interesting that the court went in this direction. All right. So let's hit let's hit some of the uh, con uh, conspiracy theories, because some of these are really fun. So <laughs> so uh, I, I would suggest, uh, Rachel, just just lob some of these out here and then let, let's see if we can knock them into right field. Oh, my gosh. There's so many conspiracy theories. It's it's bad. Where to start? OK, so one conspiracy theory, I guess, is that Britney Spears, just her father won't let go of control. So Britney is forever in prison and she cannot make absolutely any decision for herself, um, including going to McDonald's and getting a ice cream cone if she wants one. That sounds pretty extreme to me. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty extreme. I was hoping you guys would just say like, wow, yeah. Wow, man. Just kind of start with that one. Pretty, pretty uh, bad. Um, <laughs> I've heard, yeah, I've heard similar ones where along those lines of the theory being that she's not able to make any decisions and that the that access to her is tightly controlled. And, and maybe that is something that the conservator has the power to do. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting in the in the sense of when, you know, you think of like we we're talking about, a, it's what you would think of a stereotypical conservatorship, right? Where we've got an elderly individual and they're dealing with dementia. And a typical individual, right, is not going to have $60 million of assets like Britney Spears has, is also not going to be signing Vegas residency, is not going to be signing on to be on the X Factor, right? There's a lot of contracts that are being signed for Britney, she's constantly involved in, in different things. If she wants to go on tour, there are some more contracts there. And so 
And you look at just who then can really sit down with Brittany one-on-one and really talk to her, like you said, just really kind of get some more information from her. It could be really hard. And maybe the conservators, you know, do have a level of control, but at the same time, there is $60 million of assets on the lines. So, you know, to Joe's point earlier of when you're looking at potential undue influence and someone dissipating all of the assets, if, you know, they're not properly managed by someone, that is a real concern here in this case. And that's one of the issues that was brought up, I believe, by Jamie's attorneys, which is that when this conservatorship was first started, Brittany's assets only consisted of like two and a half million dollars. And there was concern that a prior boyfriend was really having a lot of control over her and that he could really waste a lot of her assets. And that's why that was one reason why they really needed wanted this conservatorship to begin with. And now you see the conservatorship estate grow to 60 million. Obviously, Brittany's been very busy since 2008. And so it makes sense why there's a lot more money. Um, But it shows that they are conserving the assets and then they are doing, looks like to me, at least a prudent job of making sure that her assets are not being wasted. So there's a whole bunch of yeah different issues there. Like you said, we don't have the complete information, but it it definitely just makes you think. So so this is such an interesting question for the judge the next time that there's a hearing on this on this question you know you know should the conservatorship continue in the way that it has you know one way to look at it is that and this is you know what i've heard um jamie spears's attorney start to argue is that the conservatorship has been successful uh, because it's you know she's been able to regain financial stability and is doing well um the counter argument is that she's doing so well that She's doing well of her own, you know, capacity, and that's evidence that she doesn't need this conservatorship. And that's a tough call for the judge. Um, it's really hard to say, like, what, you know, how the judge will make that determination. And, you know, it'll depend on what what evidence the attorneys on both sides can put before the judge as to, you know, which direction it goes. To be clear, though, Brittany hasn't so far asked for the conservatorship to be ended. She's just asked that the conservator be changed. So we'll also see if that... It, if if she changes her position anytime in the future. Yeah, I think that's the key point there in combating the most ridiculous conspiracy theory that it's just she's in prison all day long and can't do anything, which is no one has tried to petition the court to terminate it. Britney Spears has not, her family members has not have not. So apparently someone at some point must be okay with this conservatorship. And it's only been within this last year that we've really seen Brittany take a position in opposition of her father's. Right now, we're finally seeing it in petitions that she opposes her her father being a conservator. There was an allegation in one petition where she's fearful of her father. She doesn't want to uh, perform again unless her father is uh, removed as a co-conservator. But even with all of those allegations, again, that's still not terminating the conservatorship at the end of the day. So to you know, have these conspiracy theories say that Britney's just trapped and we have to do whatever we can to free Britney. I don't truly think she's trapped. She hasn't, you know, pled for help yet on help me guys get out of this conservatorship. She hasn't actually said she does not want it yet. I think that, that's right. Uh, and, you know, another interesting, you know, to speak to the, the some of the conspiracy theories about her, you know, the idea that Britney's in prison it, it really depends on what the judge has ordered. You know, um, a conservatorship 
Each conservatorship can be a little bit different because the judge can tailor some of the restrictions. At least this is how it works in California. So, you know, I think in general, a conservatee can have visitors and can lead lead a social life unless the judge has determined that that's that say, say a person is so vulnerable to undue influence that having visitors or specific visitors is a, it could be a danger to them, then the judge could rule that, okay, we have to re- maybe restrict this person's access to just anyone. So it's very possible that the judge here has, has not made this, con- Brittany's conservatorship as tight as you might see some others being. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Another good, good conspiracy theory that I saw is that Brittany is asking for us to help save her from this conservatorship through her songs and through her posts on social media and and like what emojis she's using because you know we have to be so cryptic through emojis but it's I I think that one's funny I, I actually saw someone to talk about that in apparently if she wears certain flowers in some social media posts that's a a cryptic message for help as well and 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 the way she looks in the photo like her eyes are her eyes looking directly at you like are they piercing your soul i don't know they're they're crazy conspiracy theories i admit i i'm a 90s baby i grew up on britney spears i am partial to her i love her music i follow her on social media I don't see any cries for help or, you know, cryptic emojis um, out there. Uh, again, if if Britney Spears obviously is like we we're talking about, she's obviously done very well for herself. She's got a lot of assets. I'm sure if she truly is crying out for help, she can do it through her attorneys in a petition rather than through flower emojis on social media. Well, and you were you were mentioning like she hasn't petitioned to terminate the conservatorship, but as I understand it, like California, like a lot of places, the the list of people who could petition to end the, the conservatorship isn't just wouldn't just be her. It'd be like her and then everybody in her life who's interested in her, you know, close, you know, everybody close to her who's interested in her, not just fans. Like, the, I don't think the fans could show up in court, but, you know, all the family, everybody involved in her life, probably business partners and business managers, you know, those sorts of people would have an interest in her and the conservatorship and could file a petition with the court. At least that's the way it would be in Arizona. It's like you would be interested in it if you have some sort of stake in the conservatorship personally or or economically. And any one of those people could show up in court and say this is this is a joke and this Jamie guy is messing everything up and it's there's really no need for it. But it doesn't appear that that's happened. Exactly. So, Joe, I want to know then what what are your predictions? What if you just had to take a guess today? You know, we've got hearings already scheduled for next month. What do you see potentially happening with this conservatorship? Well, I think well, one thing is that you know Jody uh, Montgomery has now been acting as Brittany's temporary conservator of the person for about a year and a half, and a conservator of the person is the one who makes. Uh, like medical decisions. I, I say one prediction is that the court makes that a permanent appointment. seems to be going well. It seems to be someone who Brittany wants to be in that role. I think the judge, you know, probably saw this as a sort of a trial run and it, all indications are that it's probably working to everyone's benefit. So I, I, I see the judge making that a permanent um, appointment. I don't know if I'd venture anymore, but do you have any predictions? 
<laughs> I, I think you nailed it. I think that's a really good one. I think the give it give it a few more weeks for you know the the next New York Times documentary to come out, and then the media <laughs> attention just kind of shift a little bit. And it, you know, they'll still be hashtag free Britney. It'll still be there, but at least it'll it'll die down a little bit. I think at least you know, this has brought uh, conservatorships and incapacity planning to a forefront, which just as attorneys, right, I'm kind of thankful for that because we keep harping on our clients. We keep harping on this podcast about why incapacity planning is so important. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, Joe. I could see that Jody Montgomery being confirmed as a permanent conservator for Brittany. I, I personally don't see the conservatorship ending anytime soon. And I feel like given that it's taken 13 years to get to this point today where we're finally seeing a little bit of opposition from Brittany. Um, I, I don't see it changing dramatically from what we've, from what, for the documents that we've seen and what we know that we're going to be, you know, trying to terminate the conservatorship anytime soon. Yeah. It just seems like, you know, because the court appointed Bessemer Trust so recently, it actually wouldn't make any sense for the judge to then turn around and terminate the conservatorship, which as we've mentioned so far, as far as we know, nobody's asking the judge to do anyways. Um, and I'm assuming if somebody did ask the judge to do that, you'd have to at least have some sort of evidentiary hearing or trial on the issue of whether the conservatorship is still warranted under the legal standard. But the fact that the, the judge appointed Bessemer Trust within like the last six months or so, to me, I would think at least sort of putting my Arizona goggles on here, I would think that the judge would be like, yeah, let's see how this goes. You know, let's see, can these two work together? Can Bessemer Trust run things? Are they going to come in here and tell us everything's all screwed up and we need to do other things? We've, you know, you've got an independent party in there who can kind of check and see what's been done in the past and presumably report back to the judge if something isn't quite right. So that's, that's what I would think. I, I think I would be very surprised if they got rid of this conservatorship. But to your point, Rachel, it is really interesting that especially when you listen to some of the filmmakers and the people involved with the documentary, ultimately the bottom line of what they seem to say or the takeaway of what they seem to say is at a minimum, not knowing all the information that we've been talking about, about the case, all this like underlying evidentiary information that the case at least illustrates what conservatorships are, how powerful they can be in somebody's life. And at least raises the question of whether the legal standards should be what they are. And I think that's a fair point. It's a fair debate to have and, and a worthy one to have. Absolutely. I think um, even though I said I wouldn't make any more predictions, I actually, I actually do have one more. I think what this case prompts is just um, some reevaluation of the system. Now, there's so much unique about this case and so many pieces that we don't know, but it, there's at least two sort of big picture questions that, that come to my mind. And one is, you know, just sort of generally speaking, if you have someone that, that's this high functioning and this capable of you know, earning their own, not only their own living, but earning a fortune, are there different rules or standards that should apply or a different approach to a conservatorship that might might make sense? And so there might be that sort of, you know, high level, you know, reevaluation on a, on a legal level as to whether this, this this kind of case might have to be dealt with in a different way. I think the other sort of big picture issue is... Um, and, and, you know, the New York Times documentary touched on this is, you know, is there something about, you know, how women are treated in the system that is is not fair? You know, you have to wonder whether if you take this, the fact scenario of 2008 and it was 
a male rock star performer and not a female rock star performer, whether any of this would have happened. You know, I, 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 I sort of my gut tells me that it would probably would have been, you know, he he would have been viewed as sort of a bad boy, maybe a troublemaker or maybe just, you know, on the rocks for the moment. But it's hard to imagine that would it would have gone gone to this extent. So so you wonder if I mean, I think there's a reckoning that I think we all have to sort of have with that. You know, does that is that fair? Um, and it does, somehow it doesn't seem fair. I 100 percent agree with you on that. Um, and I think that's, you know, the the documentary for anyone who hasn't seen it, you know, it really goes into kind of the details and, you know, Britney's rise to, to fame and everything. But it it really goes to the point of how the paparazzi lived and breathed Britney Spears during that time, right? She was the hit celebrity, the hit singer during that time period. And when someone is watching you 24 seven, I mean, it's, it's like I was saying earlier, I would have gone crazy. It's, that's just, it's such an invasion of someone's privacy. And then to not only, you know, have paparazzi following you every second of your life, you've just gone through a bad divorce. You're going through a really bad custody battle with your very young children. It's, it's a lot. And I think that's one thing too, that at least this, this issue in this documentary has really brought up is there's also the hashtag sorry, Brittany movement, which is people now who are apologizing for their treatment of her, you know, years ago. And we talk about how nowadays the questions people were asking her, just how, uh, the media was depicting Britney would be completely uncalled for in, in today's society. At least there, you know, there's right. We're, we're having a progression now. Finally, we could see that. But to your point, it's, you know, how are we really, really, you know, looking at individuals, whether or not you're just a typical normal Joe Schmo or whether or not you are a celebrity in the limelight and you've got this issue of incapacity and whether or not, you know, your, your assets are, uh, subject to waste, it's it makes you think of just how we need to overall view these people. And again, the fact that we just don't live their life. So we're not going to have all of the information at hand. Yep. Well, let's uh, let's leave it there. There's that is just sort of scratching the surface. But uh, I think that's a, a very good start uh, for anybody who's curious about the case, curious about sort of some of the legal uh, underpinnings of the case and curious about what these conservatorship things are all about. But Joe, uh, we really appreciate you spending time with us and lending us your voice and expertise on this. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there. <laughs>